The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Very happy to be here. Can everyone hear me okay? Well, I always like to start my talks out with just a, a bow to all of you for being here. You could be anywhere out there enjoying the myriad, endless, infinite um, distractions, entertainments, and what you chose to be here. And I think that's worthy of honoring. You came to um, investigate your own mind and your own heart. And um, that's a worthy pursuit. Um, <clears throat> the uh, two, my, two of my favorite verses from the Dhammapada, um, all experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. Act or speak with a corrupted mind and suffering will follow. Like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. Act or speak with a peaceful heart, and happiness will follow like a never-departing shadow. So, um, so of course, the Buddha, when he gathered all his disciples together, um, often he would start out by saying, O nobly born, O nobly born. And so this is a noble practice that we do. The practice of the Dharma. And, <clears throat> and what are the pursuits of the noble ones? Abandoned, abandon unskillful qualities that have arisen in the mind. Guard against the further arising of unskillful qualities. Encourage arising of skillful qualities and maintain the skillful qualities that have arisen. Those are the pursuits of the noble ones. Um, so uh, actually Gil uh, asked me to talk um, about my work, to come this evening and talk about my work. Um, so, you know, Often I'm asked, you know, what is it um, exactly that chaplains do? <laughs> and um, really the answer um, is, is more about not doing than doing. Um, you know, it's, it's not so much what we um, as hospital chaplains or prison chaplains, it's not so much what we do or say, but really how we are. Um, what presence do we bring to situations of intense human suffering? How present and accepting can we be in the face of the most painful human emotions? Grief and fear, anger, loneliness, bitterness, confusion, spiritual distress. I mean, are we able to fully open our hearts to that person? And um, so, of course, this open heart to human suffering is first and foremost in our work. And my uh, path to this work, 
to spiritual caregiving. Um, it began with really a deep investigation of my own heart through this practice that we do, the practice of mindfulness meditation. And um, I know that to be truly present to, um, to someone else in a time of crisis, um, I know I have to be really intimately familiar with my own interior landscape, with my own deepest fears and sorrows and anxieties. And actually, years ago, when I, um, when I first set foot in a hospital um, as a volunteer spiritual caregiver, uh, the experience brought me right face to face with my own terrors around illness and hospitals. Um, but with this practice, with time and with this practice, um, I was able to overcome those fears. But it was that experience really of working with my own resistance to, um, to mortality, to the vulnerability of my own body, to devastating illness. You know, coming face to face with those is really what supports me in my work as I'm really I journey with others who are um, coping with these realities um, often for the first time. So so I think that um, as a Buddhist chaplain I I bring something um, kind of special to my work and really this talk is is really about the buddhist perspective on spiritual care and so as buddhists we um as a buddhist caregiver i have the uh, i feel like i have cultivated the wisdom of um emptiness um of emptiness so that i can come in and I I don't have an agenda, I don't have a fixed view. And that helps me to be really present, really open to this other person. Um, I have, I like to think, um, an undefended heart. An undefended heart. Because through my practice, I've cultivated that um, inner quality of stability of equanimity. Um, and, and I also have a sense that um, it's, not, it's not me talking to this person. It's kind of like us. It's us. We're together in this, um, in this um, life of a- birth, aging, illness, and death. We're, we're all in it together. So, um, so the Dalai Lama um, once said, um, love and compassion are not luxuries, they are necessities if we are to survive as human beings. So, um, as a hospital chaplain, I... Um, 
at, at San Francisco General, I'm, I'm really part of, of the team. I'm part of an interdisciplinary team. Um, there's a, this is the palliative care team, a doctor, a nurse, social worker, and spiritual caregiver, so that there is this understanding um, in this hospital and with this team that, you know, we are, um, we're not just bodies to care for. We are, um, we, we are, uh, we have our physical uh, dimension, we have um, an emotional dimension, we have a spiritual dimension. And so in a good hospital, when you're getting good care, there's this understanding that you mu- we must care for um, you as a whole being. So therefore we have, um, we have this team of caregivers. And I really, that's one thing that I really like about working in a hospital is being part of that team. So as I work with people who are struggling with crisis, with um, life, um, life-changing, um, life-threatening um, illnesses, really what I'm working with based on my practice is, um, you know, what is the relationship to what's happening here? What, what, is, um, what is the relationship? Because as we know, um, as Buddhist practitioners, we have very little that we can control in life. Um, you know, we, we, um, we don't have um, absolute control over our own bodies. We don't have absolute control over our family members. We don't have... There's so many things that we don't have any control over. But one thing that we can control is our relationship to what's happening. Um, and that's what this, this practice is all about. And um, so when I'm caring for someone who's very sick, I'm, I'm often kind of exploring their relationship to what is happening to them. And this really um, can begin really a healing process. So I like to work with people to kind of feel, feel what is your, um, how you are experiencing this. You know, feel the resistance, the hardening in the body, the resistance to what's happening, the wanting for things to be other than what they are. Because these are all obstacles to healing. And we know that in our practice. You know, when we, this practice is about learning how to, or practicing how to accept and how to let go. Um, so as, as, as the, as people work towards this, um, as they, um, hopefully with a little guidance can touch into their own spiritual dimension to the transformative power of accepting and letting go, you know, as I'm accompanying people on this journey, um, really you know, we can come to, despite, despite the difficulties, we can come, there is the possibility of coming to um, this deep sense of inner peace, and no matter what's happening. And so this is really why we're practicing. This is why we're practicing. 
And this is why we put all the effort into this for the peace and the contentment that um, is the fruit of this practice. Um, you know, the Buddha was once sitting with um, a number of his disciples, and he um, he pointed off in the distance, and off in the distance there was um, a mountain. And he said, um, Bhikkhus, look at that mountain over there. That is like the suffering of those who have not discovered this path that we're on, who are not, who have not discovered this practice. And then he had one of his disciples pick up a little crumble of earth, and he said, "That bhikkhus is the um, is the suffering that we experience as practitioners of the Dharma." So that image um, was a very powerful one for me. And of course, it requires our effort. It requires us to be mindful. It requires vigilance. So um, I thought I would share with you um, a story. And this story um, is really what inspired me to um, get involved with this work. It was a story that, um, that Gil told, actually, on a retreat. Um, I was on retreat with him for about 10 days. He told this story. Um, so the story is uh, set in a monastery, and um, the monastery has just opened its doors to, um, to the new monks and nuns who are just coming in for the first time. And so then they've been in the, these um, young um, monks and um, nuns have been in the monastery for a few days and kind of re- or getting oriented. And so um, they were called into the meditation hall um, at the end of the day, one day. And um, the, um, the abbess of the monastery said, um, now um, we have some really, um, something very uh, exciting coming up for all of you. Um, in the next few days, we are going to be visiting the most holy, sacred sites in Buddhism. And the monks and nuns, you know, kind of looked at each other and they were like, wow, that sounds really, that sounds really exciting. That sounds really cool. Because really they'd been kind of, some of them were kind of bored. And some of them were kind of wondering, you know, why am I here? (laughs) Um, So they were really very excited. So um, they were asked to gather um, outside the doors of the monastery the next morning early, and um, which they did. And um, so they all took out, uh, took off walking down the road, and um, they came to um, to um, a residence where um, there were very elderly monks and nuns who were residing there. People in their eighties, nineties, some in their hundreds, and they were here. They were living here because um, they could no longer totally care for themselves. So they were kind of you know, it was assisted living for um, monks and nuns. And so um, the, um, the new monks and nuns were asked to spend the day um, sitting and talking and helping to care for these folks. So um, at the end of the day, they returned to the monastery and um, were asked uh, to get up the, early the next morning, which they did, and met outside the doors of the monastery, and they took off down a different road this time, and this time they came to a hospital. 
And so they were asked to spend the day in the hospital visiting with the patients and um, just, just being with the patients and helping to, to care for them. At the end of the day, they returned to the monastery. And um, the next morning, again, they met at the gates and took off down a different road this time. And um, uh, this time they, uh, they came to a hospice where um, monks and nuns who were in the process of dying um, were here. And so they spent the day um, sitting with people and um, just, um, just being with people at the end of life. And then they returned. And um, in, in the morning, again, they, they came together in the meditation hall, and they, um, the abbot came before them and, and basically said, well, now you have visited the most holy sites of Buddhism, and we hope that you will reflect on your experiences there and um, reflect on how, um, how you relate to these realities of human life, to aging and to illness and death. So that's the story that inspired me. And of course, um, you know, these, these are three of the four heavenly messengers that um, inspired the Buddha to um, begin his search um, for um, uh, some way to f- be at ease, um, to have some peace in this life, knowing that um, these very um, harsh realities are, are something that we all face. And of course, the fourth heavenly messenger was the renunciate, the, um, the, the monk who um, was walking, the Buddha observed, walking very serenely through, um, through all the chaos and uproar of the market in the village and um, just, just walking very serenely undisturbed. That was the fourth heavenly messenger and the Buddha really decided that that's what he wanted for himself. He wanted that peace. And so he began his search. And so, um, so why do we call them the heavenly messengers? Why do we call them the heavenly messengers? Um, because I think when we um, acknowledge for ourselves the, these realities of aging, illness, and death, that we are, we are encouraged to search for a way um, not only to cope with them, but to really taste, uh, get a taste of the freedom that the Buddha found through this practice that he has passed on to us. And to see how, um, through this practice, we can transform our relationship um, to this world of ours that is sometimes so painful and so full of grief and sorrow. Um, How can we find this freedom in the midst of um, all of this? And of course, um, the Buddha's very last words were... um, All in this life is impermanent. Practice with diligence. And for me, you know, I mean, some people would kind of think, well, isn't that kind of, um, 
isn't that kind of bringing gloom and doom into life? Um, but I, I found just the opposite. Um, I find that when we, or when I acknowledge um, the reality of um, the impermanence of human life, that it brings really just a, an almost unbearable brightness to my experience. And each moment um, seems so precious. Um, each relationship with loved ones and friends, so precious. Um, so this is really what I love about my work of spiritual caregiving because the moment I set foot in the hospital, I'm reminded, I'm always reminded that this is sacred ground. This is sacred ground for a Buddhist. Um, all around me is illness, aging, and, and death. And it not only keeps me mindful and vigilant, but... What I found is that this work um, really holds me in, um, in a certain space that we call the sublime abidings, the Brahma-viharas. Um, compassion, kindness, joy, and equanimity, the Brahma-viharas. So, um, so compassion... Um, you know the Latin the Latin roots are compati, uh, meaning to suffer with, to suffer with. So, I think in order to be a skillful spiritual caregiver, I think we have to be very familiar with our own suffering, in order to really be with someone else in their suffering. Um, you know the the very um, the very I guess Theravadan teaching on compassion is essentially um, the understanding that um, just as I um, just as I wish to be happy in this life, so do all other beings wish to be happy. As I um, do not wish to be unhappy, um, so it is with all living beings who not wish to be unhappy. Um, just as I wish to live and to fulfill myself in this life, so it is with all living beings. And just as I do not wish to die, so it is with all living beings. And that is really... That, that is really the um, underpinning, I think, of compassion, that uh, understanding that we are all in this together. We are all in this together. Um, I, I heard um, or read or I think I've heard this um, study cited and I've read it. Um, there was some research that was done um, some real-time brain imaging on a Tibetan Buddhist monk who was doing his compassion practice. 
And so what they saw on the imaging was that there were two areas of the monk's brain that were kind of firing during this practice. And so one of the areas was the one associated with the experience of pain. Um, Kind of this really reinforces um, this understanding that when our hearts are truly open to those who are suffering, we are really referencing our suffering because we know what it feels like to suffer. And the other area of the brain that was involved in this experience um, was the one associated, associated with deep happiness and satisfaction. Um, so I kind of understand this study in two ways. It's really evidence of how deeply satisfying um, the deep happiness, how, how, how deeply satisfying it can be to offer this presence to, um, to someone who's suffering and to offer that with a heart that's truly open. Um, that is deeply satisfying. And um, also I see it as evidence um, that we, uh, we see the possibilities here. We, we have a sense of the transformative power um, of becoming int- intimate with our own suffering. Um, and then also the, um, the possibilities of this true happiness um, that... Um, that Buddhist practice can bring us, the promise, the possibility, the awakening, um, you know, to, um, to look at the Buddha's life and to look at the lives of, of others who are practicing and um, to see that deep, um, deep peace and contentment and happiness. And of course, the Buddha, um, the Buddha embodied boundless compassion, boundless loving-kindness, boundless empathetic joy, and boundless equanimity. And, of course, he came to... to, um, He came to those qualities through this practice by really examining deeply, investigating his relationship to his experience... Um, by looking very deeply inside, by investigating his relationship to his body and breath, his relationship to his mind, his relationship to the outside world as he experienced it through his senses. So this is what we just did, right, in our practice. This is what we were just doing. So... What is your relationship with this moment? What is your relationship to your body, to your breath? What is your relationship to your mental activities? And what is your relationship to the realities of aging, illness, and death? So I thought I would end with um, one of my favorite poems. It's called Autumn. It's by Rilke. As from the distance, leaves are falling. 
fall as if the far-off gardens fade into the sky. They fall with gestures of relinquishing. And through the night, there falls the pressing earth down past the star in lonesomeness. We are all falling. There, this hand falls too, occurring to us all. Just look around you. Still, there is one who holds us tenderly, as in his hands we fall, fall endlessly. Anybody have any comments or anything they would like to share? Thank you. This might might be silly, but I was just going to ask if you could read the poem again. Uh, I'd love to. Thank you. <laughs> I'd be happy to read it again. <clears throat> as from the distance leaves are falling, fall as if the far-off gardens fade into the sky. They fall with gestures of relinquishing. And through the night there falls the pressing earth down past the star in lonesomeness. We are all falling There, this hand falls too, occurring to us all. Just look around you. Still, there is one who holds us tenderly, as in his hands we fall, fall endlessly. I should know. Um, (laughs) So one of the questions that comes up for many people, including myself, about the um, um, bringing compassion into situations like that is um, some fear that compassion is kind of limited, like it takes energy or, you know, that there's something that there's, there's, there can be something uh, draining about it. And I would imagine you've been in some quite challenging situations. And do you have anything that you could say to us about how to work with um, maybe the near and far enemy of compassion that, um, you know, that... Um, gets in the way of being able to do this practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, of course, 
the Buddha, only the Buddha, <laughs> had the boundless compassion. You know, I mean, we, um, whatever we can offer is enough. Um, and sometimes we feel that our mind tells us it's not enough. But really, um, all we can offer is what we have to offer. And um, we're not the Buddha. <laughs> not the Buddha. Um, yeah, I come, uh, I come up against my uh, limitations. I do. I did today. And um, I, um, I had this feeling of um, helplessness. I, being with someone who was in agony, physical, spiritual, emotional agony, um, as she's nearing end of life. And I, <clears throat> I sat with her and held her hand for as long as I could. And um, I came against my limitation. I had to, I got up and I left and I went to look for someone to give her some more medication. Um, but I have to, um, I have to realize that I'm only human <laughs> too. I'm only human. And um, I gave what I could. And I'll probably go back tomorrow. I will go back tomorrow. Um, but it's, it's hard sometimes. It is. And so you have to keep your heart open to yourself too. Yeah. A follow-up question on that. So, what do you do to care for yourself? Um, how do you take care of yourself so that I, I'm a teacher, and so I'm familiar with that feeling, although it's a different one. So, mm, yeah. What do you do to keep yourself going? Well, I um, I have my I have this practice. I mean, I couldn't do my work without this practice, um, and this practice of <clears throat> um, being with what is. And sometimes that what is is my need to remove myself from a situation when I can feel that I'm I'm getting overtaxed. That I. Um, and that I, when I know that I have other people that I have to see, <laughs> um, I have my family, and so I, um, <clears throat> so I had that practice. I have a, a I certainly can feel that um, the balance and the equanimity that this practice gives me, so that I can, I can come to that hospital every day and 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 survive and. But I, I have to have my practice. Sometimes I just have to go in the chapel and sit, you know. And I have my yoga practice. I, I need to get out in nature. <laughs> um, I have to really pay attention. I, I, I know this for a fact that if I, if I can't care for myself, then I can't care for anybody else. So I have to really, I have to factor in myself as well.
In the past uh, three years, I was a caregiver for the elderly. Um, I did a lot of hospice, pa hospice patients. And one of the things that I encountered, and I'm sure possibly you have as well, is the patient or family member who has this deeply entrenched belief that they will not die. And this is an experience I had over and over again that I was frequently at a loss for. I'm now in a training program to become a teacher, but um, I see the relationship between this end-of-life issue and the invincibility that young people feel. And I was wondering how you have coped with this very particular belief system um, in your work. Well, um, you know... <laughs> As a Buddhist, I, um, I do often um, point out um, what is, but not everyone can hear it. So that's it. Just have to, you know, let it go. And then the person, you know, e each person comes to these difficult things differently. And some people just can't face it. So, so then I just um, I just kind of try to work with them on their ground, you know, whatever um, whatever comforts them, whatever seems to have meaning. I just go there and let my own um, you know um, feelings and thoughts around, you know, well, don't you see what's really happening here? <laughs> Can't you get ready for it? No. <laughs> no. Some people can't. So you just let it go. <laughs> well, um, is there any, any, anyone else? Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. No, it's on. I was just wondering if you could elaborate just a, a bit on, um, you've mentioned balance and equanimity a couple times, and I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that sense of equanimity. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, as we sit here with ourselves, um, and we... Um, we use that mindfulness of the body and the breath, as, <clears throat> hopefully as our um, foundation for um, kind of uh, observing and investigating our experience as it flows by. And as as you, or as I have cultivated that very um, essential, basic practice of um, mindfulness of the body and breath, I think that's what really gives, that's what holds me steady. And when I feel, um, uh, when I feel that I'm getting caught up in someone else's um, story and someone else's anxiety, I really, I really kind of, I try to feel my feet on the floor, my seat on the chair, my breath in my body, and that, that helps me to stay steady. Well, thank you for allowing me to um, share uh, stories from my work and how my practice is so essential. Um, and um, so I, I wish you all um, a safe 
trip home and above all, peace of mind. <laughs>